everyone. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Uh, again, this is a special episode. I was um, invited by the Tinkers 50 platform to have an interview with them. So actually they made a podcast uh, with an interview of me, but they also allowed me to share it here with, with all of you. Uh, just as a background, T Tinkers 50 is based in London and it's a platform that combines and uh, makes the ideas of, of many Uh, thought leaders available and easy to, to have access to in order to improve society and uh, to improve the world. So I was very, very honored that they asked me for an interview. I really enjoyed my conversation with them and I hope you will as well. Enjoy this special episode of my podcast. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast. Brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery. Hello, I'm Stuart Craner, and this is a Thinkers 50 podcast. Today, I'm talking with Stephen Van Belligam, author of Customers the Day After Tomorrow. Stephen's previous book was the prize-winning When Digital Becomes Human. Stephen, welcome. Hi, thank you, Stuart. How to attract customers in a world of AI, bots, and automation. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a big promise and it's a big issue. Uh, it seems to me that the role of customers and how customers are understood has been transformed and often customers have become product, haven't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if you look at many of the big technology companies, how they are forming their business models, customers um, are becoming the product, data is becoming the ingredient for making money. So there's a big transformation that, uh, that is happening. And I think it's changing the way that people actually look at corporations and what they expect from them. Um, and, and the cool thing is, you know, we're moving into this new phase of, of digital and we're moving from mobile first to AI first. You feel that in everything that you read and see. And I think this new phase actually creates a, a large number of opportunities for companies to treat customers in a different way. I, I like to play with the element of time. Um, I believe that time is the scarcest resource that people have these days. And with these new AI applications, you can actually create benefits that help people save time. Uh, you can do faster than real-time customer service. Uh, by, by using data, you can anticipate two problems and solve them before the customer actually knows that there is a problem. Uh, we're moving into a world of hyper-personalization, which makes it easier to choose in life, for instance. And we have the most convenient user interfaces the world has ever seen. And, and all three of these benefits, faster and real-time hyper-personalization convenience, will be lift to a higher level than, than we had in the past because of these smarter technologies that we, uh, that we see popping up around us. So let's un unpack, unpack that. You, you condensed a lot into that, that one answer, Stephen. The, so we're in the third phase in, in, in digital evolution. So phase one was making information available by the internet. Mm -hmm. Phase two was about mobile technology. And phase three is about automation and, and AI. Right. And we're just setting out on phase three, effectively. Yeah, we're, we're like at the beginning of a new S-curve. Uh, it, it reminds me to the days that we had the iPhone that was launched in 2007. Back then, Steve Jobs said, this will become the life in your pocket. Um, today in 2019, we all know that it has become the life in our pocket, but back then we didn't have a clue what he was talking about. I mean, we, we used the iPhone to make phone calls with, basically, and read emails. We had no idea what we would use it for today. And I think we see the same thing now in 2019. 
Uh, we're at the beginning of a new S-curve. If you look at one of the most tangible things around uh, AI, it's, it's probably the smart speakers like Google Assistant and, and Alexa. But, you know, the way that we use them today, it's, it's like the iPhone in 2007. We use it for gimmicks. And they only work for like 90% of what they actually could do. So I, I, I try to look at what it could become um, 10 years from now, five years from now, when these devices really work well and when you really have a virtual assistant. I think that could fundamentally change the way that we do branding, fundamentally change the way the products will be brought to market. And it will create a whole new customer experience once again, just like mobile did in the last 10 years. So you argue that AI will offer added value in customer relations? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm convinced about that because, you know, it's, it's about, there, there are two things you can do with the element of time. You can save time of customers and you can enhance time of customers. And I think AI has the capability to do both. Thanks to data analytics, they can anticipate faster in real time, as I mentioned before. Um, but they can also give you more relevant information. They can maybe personalize your entertaining content to, to an extreme level so that your precious free time is, is also lifted to a higher level. So I, I like to think that AI has that capability to enhance time and save time. And that is actually something that can you know, help customers to improve their life and make their life more fun. And which companies actually get this, do you think? <laughs> You know, the, the truth is uh, that most of all, this thing, all these things, I, I see them in China, to be honest. I think the, the future of customer experience is already happening in China. Um, they're far ahead of what I see U.S. companies do. They're far ahead of what I see European companies do. The truth is most Europeans and U.S. marketing people or business leaders have not heard of some of these Chinese companies. Uh, that really changed the game. I, I, I thought it was impressive to see when Fast Company announced their yearly list of the most innovative companies of the year. For the first time this year, there were two Asian companies leading the list. Uh, the first one was Mage One Changping, which is a company that most people never heard of before it was on the list, but it's the most customer-friendly, the most advanced logistics company in the world. They are facilitating every small Chinese business owner to be a leading e-commerce player. Uh, they both make sure that customers have easy access to those products and that they get, get delivered in like 29 minutes. But at the same time, they also help the, the B2B customer, the, the retailer, to, to do their stock management, to do better marketing, to basically become top-level managers without ever having the education they needed to that because that platform knows what they want and they give it to them in, an, in a fascinating way. Uh, those kind of examples are, are companies we don't have yet in Europe and the US, but they completely fundamentally changed the market, both on a customer side and on a business side. So the future of customer experience is happening in China, which is a, a sentence I never thought uh, I, I would say. <laughs> the, uh, but how did that come about? What, what, was, what was stopping companies in Europe or, or America I mean, who would have argued 20 years ago that they really understood their customers and had a good relationship with the customers and gave them what they want and marketed accordingly. Where, where, where did they go wrong? When, where, where did they, when did they lose touch? number of things. First of all, I, I think that if you look at Europe, in my opinion, I, I love traveling all over the world, but I think Europe is the best place to live in terms of quality of life and, and you know, 
making sure that everything that we need in life is taken care of. We have good education, good healthcare, no big climate disasters here. I mean, life is good in Europe. We complain too much. Um, but because of that, I think in general, both organizations and governments, they're trying to keep what we have. We're trying to make sure that we don't lose that fantastic quality in life. And because of that, we take decisions that just go for a status quo, basically. Um, I think U.S. is different. I think U.S. has a culture that they want to lead the world in, in different levels. And they are obviously pretty good in that. Um, but they're limited, I think, in terms of, um, yeah, how, how, I don't know really how to put it, but I think in ethical barriers, I think that sometimes we think too much about certain elements or certain applications, if we should launch them or not launch them to, to the market. And, and that's totally different in China. I think the, 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 the key difference in China is that in the last 30 years, we had something or something happened in the world that hasn't happened anywhere before in the entire history of our planet. That is in one, in the time of one generation, people evolved from being totally poor. I think in 85, in 1985, 85% of all Chinese people had an income of $1 a day or lower. In 30 years time, they completely transformed that. So they have a feeling of optimism. They have a feeling of we're going to take our place back in the world. And nothing will stop us. And they took some pretty blunt decisions, like blocking out the U.S. tech players was one of them. It's a big Chinese firewall. We thought it was a disgrace, but today it was actually something really smart to do if you have a home market of 1.4 billion people. Um, and another thing, of course, is the, the fact that they were pretty slow in the beginning of digital means that they were able to skip an entire phase that we had in Europe and the U.S., meaning the, the whole desktop phase. They basically created a digital environment that was completely ready for the mobile phone. And the truth is in US and in Europe, many companies and people are just stuck with the old infrastructure that has been around for years and we've been improving it for years. And we added mobile to it as an add-on, whereas China created a world that is mobile only. And because of that combination, that optimism of their society, seeing that we're going to take our place back and skipping a very important phase in digital, I think that explains the situation where they're at, where they're at right now. Yeah, which explains why, why you, can, uh, you get great mobile phone coverage in China and terrible mobile phone coverage in London. The, exactly. so, so there's kind of a fundamental defensiveness about uh, the European uh, position and uh, allied to kind of a legacy infrastructure which has, right. has, has held, held us back. That's what I think, yeah. Uh, you, talk, you talk about a new customer journey. What, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, customer journeys are, are not from A to B anymore. It doesn't start with a product search and it doesn't end with a purchase. Uh, people live in a world where they get a, a constant flow of information, um, both from organizations, but also from their friends, family, opinion leaders, all these sparks of inspiration are, are putting us in like some continuous flow of being interested in stuff and trying to find out what kind of stuff we want, what we want to buy and so on and so on. Um, once we bought, it's not the end of the journey because we start talking about how we use those products again with our friends and family, stimulating others to consider those products as well. So it's like an an, an endless circle of 
being in the mood to buy that people are in both before and after a purchase. And I think that, that, that needs a different kind of marketing to, towards these consumers. I think it's, it's a matter of figuring out how you can be part of their life, how you can be part of their thinking, uh, rather than trying to catch them at the exact right moment when they're in a buying funnel. Yeah. And it, again, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. But again, who, who gets this, do you think? Are any Western companies leading the way in this? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that a company like, like Amazon is probably the leading example in the Western world. I mean, they, they're obviously really good in, in making sure the transactions we do with them are successful. Uh, that's, I think, the core delivery. But if you look at their, their prime business model, I think it's, it's one of the most brilliant things we've ever seen in, in the recent history of, of doing business. I mean, it's like a big Trojan horse. First of all, the offer is an offer you cannot refuse. Uh, if, if you live in, in the US, for instance, you have to be a complete idiot not to be on Amazon Prime. I mean, it, it saves you money, it saves you time, it saves you energy. You get your stuff faster and you get all these benefits and it's only like, what, $10 a month. So it's, it's like the offer you cannot refuse. But on the other hand, it's also this fantastic lock-in that they created that, you know, why would you ever leave Amazon? I think the only challenge they have now is to make sure that the, the, the size of the baskets become larger uh, so that it's not a one, two, three, or five item purchase that you do every single time, but that you create a basket that is supermarket worthy and make sure that they can also establish then this, this great performance and delivery. Uh, but they are fantastic in what they do. Uh, they, they, they predict what you want before you know you want it. And now in, in, let's say, the last two years, what they've done with Alexa, I think it's brilliant again. It's, it's, you, imagine what you can do if you put a voice assistant like Alexa in, in half of the U.S. households and that voice assistant becomes some sort of a filtering system for consumers that will decide what you buy and what you don't buy. And you also own the biggest store on the planet. So you own the filter you own the full interface with the end user and you own the biggest store on the planet. I think that is such a powerful position that it's crazy, scary, and extremely smart at the same time. And the best part of it all is consumers just love it because it's helping them to get through their day-to-day -day purchases in a fantastic way. But isn't the danger with something like Amazon Prime or Apple Music or Spotify that we're locked in, but the feeling after a while is that you're imprisoned. I mean, there's a very thin line between uh, being locked in and getting, getting the benefits and not having the freedom to go elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. It's the, the, the golden cage that they create. And, and what does it need to escape from that one? If you want to escape, I think as long as things are working really well and if it works efficient and it's good price quality and, and all that, I don't think there's a problem. The problem starts when you don't trust that company anymore. I think Facebook is a good example today. Um, if you look at 2018, I think we can all agree that that wasn't the best year of the company in terms of PR. Uh, they, had, they had some big issues. They're trying to restore trust, but they're not succeeding at it. Um, when I was visiting them a few months ago, they said, today we can control 95% of all kind of negative content on Facebook. We can remove it before it's published. 
um, and we want to go to 99%. Afterwards, I was thinking 99% is a disaster for a company like Facebook because that 1% can cause a lot of damage. Huh? We, we had the, the live shooting in New Zealand, which was terrible. Um, they couldn't stop it, which is unacceptable for a company like, like Facebook. If airline companies would be happy with the 99% rate with their landings, I don't think people would fly anymore. So 99% is a bad performance for a company like Facebook. Problem is, everyone agrees with that. No one leaves except some people that weren't using it before. But the truth is, the world, more than 2.2 billion people are still communicating every day on the Facebook platforms. Why? Because there's no alternative that is good enough and where you can reach all your friends. Everyone's on WhatsApp, Instagram, or Facebook, so that's where we are. So that's an example of a golden cage. Uh, and, and at that moment, the question is, Will we ever have an alternative? Is there a company that can fight against that golden, golden cage and, and let's say in a, in a time span of one or two years, move that entire community somewhere else? I don't know. To be honest, I have big doubts if that will happen. I think that Facebook will remain to have bad PR, but at the same time, I think they will remain to grow for the next few years. So that's, that's the, the, the one thing that really you know, that, that I struggle with a lot. What can stop a company like Facebook? What would, what would need to happen to make sure that people leave the golden cage like crazy? I don't know the answer to that. But trust, trust generally is in short supply. It and, is. And it is interesting. I, I don't really think there's, there's much way, it's difficult to rebuild trust, I think, in, in Facebook's mm -hmm. situ situation. What, what about the role of regulation in that sort of thing? I mean, I mean, surely the, there is a need for greater regulation to make sure that the 99% is, 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 un, is an, an, an acceptable amount. And yeah. they say, of course, that uh, it's, a global, it's a global industry. It's impossible to regulate. But we, ha we have uh, human rights conventions, Geneva Convention of Warfare. We do have global agreements which actually stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. So what kind of form of regulation would work, do you think? Because that must, that must play a part in building, build, rebuilding trust. It does. At, the, at this moment, the, the truth is there is no regulation at all with regard to AI, so, which, which is basically a disaster because this is so powerful that people with bad intentions can do really bad things in an invisible way. We won't even know that things are happening. So I don't know how to organize for that, but I, I, I certainly know that we need regulation in terms of AI rapidly. I, the, the, the one simple thing that we need urgently is, in, in my opinion, is algorithm transparency. Uh, you know, big public companies today, they need to be transparent about their financials. We can all look into the financials of, of most companies around the world. And we have experts that check if, if they're doing their financials in a correct way. So you can trust them as a shareholder. I think we're going to need the same about algorithms. Today, the truth is algorithms are a black box. We don't know what happens inside of that black box. We, we, we don't even know the input we put into it. We only see the output and we have no clue what happened from the beginning of data entry until that output. I'm, I'm a big supporter of creating algorithm transparency that you have experts that go to the, these big companies, to public companies, and that they have to show the whole thing and that it has to be published as well so that the world knows what is happening, to, so the world knows that you know, they're not charging you more money because you happen to make more money 
or they're not giving you a low-level product because they don't like you, those kind of things, we need transparency. And as long as we don't have that, I think that you know, AI will become the temptation island for marketing people. The, the temptation to play with this technology to create more benefits for yourself than for the customer, it's just too high, the temptation. They won't be able to resist. I'm certain of it. And as I mentioned, it's mostly invisible. We won't even know it. So without some regulator saying you need to be, uh, you need to be transparent about that, it's going to be a disaster. So, I mean, perhaps there should be an encyclopedia of algorithms or a Wikipedia of algorithms where there, there can some, some sort of global gathering place for algorithms. Yeah, some rules. This is the ethical, ethical standards that you have to play with. And then someone who checks if those rules are applied. And it's like with financials, right? If you do something in the, in the red zone, you're going to pay big money for that. If it's in the gray zone, there will be a debate. And then both the expert and the company will have to make a decision of, of what happens if you're in the, in the green zone. Hey, good job. Are you optimistic? We're, we're heading in the right direction. I mean, the technology is, as you, as you say, is fantastic. The potential is, is, is unbelievable, but it's the question of harnessing it in, in ethical ways that, uh, and sustainable ways. But are you, are you optimistic? We're heading in the right direction. It, it, it's mixed with me. I, I, I am certain that we're going to see a lot of fantastic applications that really, really help uh, society, that really, really help individual people. Um, but on the other hand, I'm, I'm also really realistic. Uh, we're going to have a whole bunch of people that, that try to take advantage of things. And I'm, I'm very pessimistic in terms of the, the, the speed that regulation will, you know, will have to deal with. The, these things are evolving so rapidly. Um, we're getting more and more pressure from international companies, from, from both sides of the world. And I think regulators will be too slow. I mean, GDPR is a good effort, but it was 20 years too late. If we're going to be 20 years too late in terms of regulating AI, I'm convinced in those 20 years, we're going to have big issues. Oh, so where, where do you think we'll be in 10 years time? How, how will the relationship with customers be different? How, how will the world be different? You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in omnipresent, fully personalized AI platforms for every individual. I think if we're going to reach the end of this curve, of this curve of AI, that we're going to be in a world that we're going to be really depending on AI assistance like we're depending on mobile phones today. And I think they're going to facilitate us in our day-to-day -day life. They're going to be our operation system of our day-to-day -day life. And, and then I'm talking about, you know, your daily purchases, but also your healthcare, maybe the education, uh, your financial management. Um, I think everything will be connected to an AI assistant and it will be like your private butler in life. And we're going to be hooked to it. And I think that I, let, let's put it differently. I don't think that any other company than one of the big technology leaders today will be capable to make that. And I think if you look at, if you listen to the presentation of companies like Google and Amazon, I mean, this is what they want to create. Uh, Google has a slide that says phase one of the internet was search and phase two was mobile. And the next phase is going to be Google Assistant. It's going to replace the internet basically is what they say. If you look at how Amazon is playing with Alexa today, it's clear that they want to have Alexa in your life as 
you know, that, that, that she becomes more important than your wife, basically, in your life. Maybe some people will change wives, but they will not change Alexa because it's going to facilitate their day-to-day life so much that they cannot live without it. That's what I see happening. And I think that as a consequence, um, the power of these big technology companies that succeed in this, it will grow. The dependency of customers on those, comp- on those companies will also grow. And I think as a last one, the dependency of all other companies in the world to the big technology companies will also grow. And again, if, if you want to see how that's happening, I think if you look at China, they're pretty close to it. Huh? If you look at how WeChat is being used today, uh, WeChat by Tencent, WeChat is the operating system of a Chinese citizen today. They do all their day-to-day stuff on WeChat. It's just not fully automated yet, but the lock-in that Tencent has with these customers is just, is just huge. If you look at how retail in China is depending on the capabilities of Alibaba or Meituan Changping, I mean, these guys decided years ago, these small retailers, we cannot fight with these companies because they're too good. So let's partner up with them. So they hooked their wagon to those companies. And, and the truth is they're benefiting from it. Uh, European retailers, they all want to create their own web shop and are trying to fight it, which is, 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 is a, a strategy that makes a lot of sense. But I think 10 years from now, it's going to be really tough if you don't have a state-of-the-art system to not be depending on maybe the system of Alibaba, maybe the system of Amazon, the system of Google. I'm convinced that they will have to work together with them. Yeah, in, interesting ideas. I like the, the private but, butler, kind of Jeeves, <laughs> Jeeves and Worcester meets, meets artificial intelligence. Stephen Van Bellingham, thank you very much. Customers the day after tomorrow, a really great, great book and strongly recommended by Thinkers50. Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you, Stuart. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery.